black Kate Moss tonight. Play secretary on the boss tonight. And you don't give a f what they all say, right? Awesome, the Christian and Christian Dior. Damn, they don't make them like this anymore. I ask, cause I'm not sure. Do anybody make real d anymore? Bow in the presence of greatness. Cause right now, that has forsaken us. You should be honored by my lateness. That I would even show up to this fake. So go ahead, go nuts, go ace. Especially in my pastel on my paper. Act like you can't tell who made this new gospel. Homie, take six and take this. Haters. Not real ones like the one who do a home to us. Oh, hello. This is Hun Hurtu from Tua. You're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor. Good evening. It's a little after 6.30 p.m. And welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a humorous reference to the Ann Arbor Film Festival that both Jim and I attended uh, fairly frequently this past week. And uh, because it was the 50th anniversary, I thought it was maybe one of the best uh, of all time in terms of I would agree. Quality, quality of the movie. Um, very few stinkers, as they say. Um, lots of good stuff. Difficult choices to make as far as uh, which room do you go to, the main theater or the screening room, as I predicted, turned out to be a very true. Uh, so I would agree, uh, one of the best film festivals uh, I've ever attended here in town. And very interesting because they had some uh, movies that were, you know, they replayed movies from previous festivals. Uh, some of them, in fact, interestingly restored by uh, professional film technology courtesy of Hollywood. So uh, some of those uh, prints were uh, outstanding. And uh, one of my favorite movies that I saw was actually a sort of a re-homage to a, a director um, who... Uh, actually filmed um, in three separate continents, more or less, in three different decades, Papua New Guinea, Ethiopia, and um, uh, parts of India um, in the late 40s. It was a very interesting movie, uh, silent, however, but uh, it showed, I think, very poignantly uh, the uh, struggle that many indigenous people go through uh, on a day-to-day -day basis just to obtain basics like water and uh, food. And very, uh, very moving. And uh, no narration. I don't even remember there being any music. So uh, you were left to your... Silent movies sometimes work in these... Uh, shorts because this was about a 20 minute movie uh, because it allows the viewer of the movie to sort of uh, 
imprint onto their his or her imagination uh, a soundtrack or a uh, mood or a feeling or whatever. Yeah, uh, and sometimes it, the pictures tell the story anyway. Indeed, and as uh, noted director Craig Baldwin, the uh, speaker at this year's uh, film festival Penny Stamps Lecture, noted that most documentaries uh, are often marred by a sort of a, a hand-wringing or a guilty sort of a conscience, a guilty liberal perhaps, or uh, an angry, a very decidedly personal uh, perspective from the filmmaker in a documentary. And as you say in these silent uh, documentaries, the images are there, the viewer can draw their own natural conclusion without being sort of forced or led into a particular avenue. And I thought the documentary that won for a prize for best documentary uh, was well chosen. Uh, Guanape Sur, a film depicting the uh, collecting of bird guano from an island off the coast of Peru. Just a very, very good film, visually interesting. You can see the, the labor that these guys go through. Uh, and you, as you say, imagine uh, much of uh, what this means to the, them and their families as they slog through this difficult and probably not all that well-paying job. Yeah, and they, most of them were not wearing their masks either, Indeed. <laughs> even though they were instructed to do so. Uh, but obviously uh, there are situations where masks tend to impede your uh, productivity in a situation like that. But obviously, yeah, once again, indigenous people, poorer people, uh, engaged in one of the daily activities that uh, goes on around the world in terms of mining, um, mine, the mining of natural resources uh, for the benefit of others, quite well, frankly. As Bertrand Russell uh, once detailed in a noted essay on uh, work and uh, the false uh, importance that, uh, that we, basically his argument is that we uh, spend too much of our lives working and uh, defines work as there's two kinds of work. There's the moving of objects in physical space, and there's the telling uh, to others to move objects in physical space. Right. Those are the two tiers of work. And, of course, uh, we're all stuck in the uh, economic system of the countries that we're born into, for better or worse. Uh, and so education levels have a lot to do with where you end up on those hierarchies. And, of um, course, work and under the definition of physics is force times distance. Indeed. <laughs> so, there you go. A very, elegant, large. a very elegant equation. And, of course, cinema, uh, I think, is such an outstanding art form. I think one of the great things about the Ann Arbor Film Festival, as well as other film festivals, uh, is the fact that uh, cinema is, is a complex art form that allows uh, both video, audio, uh, narrative... Uh, it's really a synthesis of all other yeah. art forms. And it's just an amazing combination of uh, things going on. In fact, one of the things that's remarkable about the Ann Arbor Film Festival is just how many images uh, are put on, onto your brain in one form or another. Yeah, I don't know if you've done even a the, Even the yourself, opening yeah. intro, just introducing the uh, 50th anniversary of the Ann Arbor Film mm -hmm. Festival, was, was an amazing movie in and of itself. Yeah, bombarding you with the clips and images of uh, 50 years of cultural history yeah. and film programs. And, and I don't know if you noticed Gerald Ford, but but he was in that movie yep. several times. Alfred E. Newman made it twice, I, I caught. Mickey Mouse, etc. And, of course, Gerald Ford, probably the uh, most famous um, graduate of the University of Michigan. 
<laughs> and the only president of the United States never to have been elected president of the United States. Or vice president. Or vice president, yeah. indeed. But, but uh, I don't know about you, but I did the math this morning. Uh, over the six uh, days of the festival, I took in just under 28 hours of viewing. Wow. I haven't counted the actual numbers of films. Some are 20 minutes, some are two, some are three. But that's a personal best for me of uh, seven or eight years of attending every day. And, of course, it's very exciting. It's very exhausting. Uh, we can only look forward to next year's. Um, I'll mention quickly a couple favorites of mine for listeners who uh, may have also attended as much. And that's the other great thing about the festival is you all sit in the dark and watch these films together. And then discussing them afterwards is fabulous with uh, old friends here in town, uh, People from out of town, mm -hmm. strangers. I met a very nice guy from Minneapolis uh, named Trevor who came to town for the festival and had a great time chatting with him about films and speaking with the filmmakers themselves, who, of course, very happy uh, and eager to discuss their work uh, with people who love uh, experimental film or documentaries or what have you. But uh, I really uh, thought very highly of the uh, Telco Systems film Vexed, which, of course, I was expecting to enjoy. <clears throat> Strange Spanish uh, dark cartoon uh, based on a graphic novel called Bird Boy, which I know you enjoyed as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Bird Boy was great. <clears throat> and uh, an even darker cartoon called Moxie, which I can't even begin to explain. Of course, you know, films by uh, longtime uh, submitters to the Ann Arbor Film Festival, like Ben Rivers, Jody Mack, uh, and of course, Craig Baldwin. Uh, those works were also highlights for me. But I will give a special nod to the... Uh, documentaries of the Syrian filmmaker Omar Amirale, who passed away last year. This was a really great program that uh, uh, my understanding is the, the festival had to pay some significant money to get these films. Since he passed, his estate is sort of in legal limbo, mm -hmm. and it was very difficult to acquire and attain these films. But I think Dave Donnell, the uh, creative director of the program, is to be commended for uh, really going through a concerted effort to get uh, really for the first time in the Ann Arbor Film Festival, a representation of films from the Arab world. And I would only hope that uh, listeners would be able at some point to see these uh, short films by Amir Alay. Uh, very revealing. And even though uh, these films are from the late 70s, uh, early 70s, and then the, the late 90s, uh, they really help so much to uh, explain and, and reveal uh, what's going on in Syria right now. Even mm -hmm. though uh, Amir Ali has, has passed on, uh, these films really uh, reveal an aspect of Syrian uh, daily life that is otherwise really difficult to uh, get a hold of. Well, when I saw the, the uh, Chickens uh, uh, chickens movie, I, mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact title, about two-thirds of that, and I saw the last one, the Sardines uh, movie. That one I thought was particularly moving, ending as it did with the images of uh, families sh communicating through megaphones across right. the... Golan Heights. The Golan Heights. <clears throat> um, which, of course, is uh, occupied Syrian land by the government of Israel that's still at, at one of the, you know, one of the uh, hard points to negotiate uh, from the aftermath of the 67 war. On the Chickens movie in particular, I thought what was interesting about it also was that it had a lot of socioeconomic commentary that is universal around the world. The Indeed. problem of uh, overproduction... Small farmers versus Small farmers, farmers versus corporations versus the rural-urban situation where people that work exceedingly hard um, producing the food, essentially, because it was basically about chickens and eggs, mm -hmm. 
um, for the benefit of Damascus. This, of course, uh, the capital of Syria. This was set up as a uh, economic plan. They mentioned the problems of, of trade with Jordan as mm -hmm. part of the uh, deflation situation. And, of course, uh, the, the very analogous to some of the problems that uh, America suffered uh, during the Great Depression uh, with collapsing farm prices. Um, FDR and the uh, so-called brain trust of uh, the uh, Roosevelt administration has set up a, a program to deal with agricultural surplus. Um, and I thought that that was, once again, a poignant reflection you know, because they were interviewing uh, basically chicken farmers in this one village mm -hmm. that you could tell uh, suffered from uh, infrastructure um, degradation, uh, not much there, very barren, and yet uh, massive uh, chicken production farming is going on. Free-range chickens, by the way. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I always enjoy the, the, the wide variety that you can see at the Ann Arbor Film Festival in terms of the content um, and what, what's really going on. And if you just are willing to open your mind, your ass will follow. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Free your mind. <laughs> right. Assassination in Dreamland, also a really good piece about the assassination of uh, William McKinley, basically, at the World's Fair. And probably one of the first films of, of all time. Because it was Indeed, actually Edison, filmed by yep. Tom... Alva Edison, yep. the uh, who's most famous for inventing the light bulb. But well, they filmed the funeral. They didn't yeah. actually have footage of the assassination itself. No. But uh, part of the film's uh, point, I don't have the director's name in front of me, uh, in conversation with him afterwards, uh, part of his point was to sort of highlight this moment in history where media coverage of an event becomes the event. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, people were so horrified and shocked that, that this assassination had occurred that they wanted the footage of it. And so Edison was sort of teased into uh, creating a historical recreation of an event that had just happened since he had filmed the uh, funeral and uh, all the events you know, of the fabulous lighting and uh, all the splendor of the uh, World's Fair of 1901. In Buffalo, New York. September 11th, 1901. Where, interestingly, uh, the McKinley died several days after the assassination because uh, doctors uh, back in that era mm -hmm. just weren't that proficient yet. Surgery was still a work in progress. And we have this incredible uh, propaganda operation here in the United States that seems to continue to want to, to nostalgia, you know, make the old days, the good old days, yeah. so to speak, the nostalgia for the good old days is some sort of paradise on earth when, uh, most of the improvements that have been made in terms of, uh, human civilization, uh, have, have really been made in the last 100 years. And m many of those improvements have been the direct result of government, uh, uh, intervention in the uh, in the economy directly and of course um, the use of technology to uh, make our lives uh, easier so to speak well on the technology note i just want to just sort of conclude our comments on the 50th ann arbor film festival i want to give a great round of applause to executive director donald harrison uh program director david Donnell, uh operations manager maria feldman Development uh, manager, the wonderful Becca Keating, and of course, technical director Tom Bray, a man who wears many hats. Because as longtime CBNers know, he's uh, an essential figure down here as well. Yeah, and I jokingly have told uh, Tom Bray's wife that uh, 
Ann Arbor wouldn't function without Tom Bray. <laughs> it wouldn't function as well. <laughs> At least all the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's a a man that's uh, wears many hats and he wears them quite well and I I, I did definitely wanted to also emphasize how good I thought the Craig Baldwin uh, Penny Stamps lecture was yeah that was very well attended by the way that was uh, impressive that so many people turned out for that and of course he did a little. Uh, lecture combined with some clips from his movies over the years most of them i think are brilliant things but uh, his ap approach to um uh, and and theory about cinema i thought was very uh, very interesting presentation um and he just ran out of time he did he could have gone for another hour and a half i suspect <laughs> he's sort of up there waving his arms and yeah. i'm out of time i'm out of oh i don't have time for that <laughs> that's one, right we're done i'm I, I got 20 more points on this lecture and we're two-thirds <laughs> of the way uh i'm my Oh well, but that's yep. uh, that's life in the big city, as they say. And well, uh, and we'll see if WCBN can't uh, find its way through to uh, present a Craig Baldwin film as one of its uh, movie nights, because I think certainly uh, they're right up the CBN audience's alley. Yes, indeed, we love Tribulation '99 down here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Of course, another uh, news uh, of the week. You know, it's interesting how the uh, well, the health care bill uh, before the Supreme Court was obviously sort of the big story of the week. And it's just, just once again fascinating to get a, a, uh, a snapshot of how poorly Americans understand our own health care system. And w what they're angry about is uh, surprising because when uh, on Tuesday of the 27th of uh, March, uh, the New York Times had a very interesting public opinion poll regarding... Uh, the law itself that was under review. And let's remember, despite all of the commentary and analysis regarding the oral arguments, there were an unprecedented number of amicus briefs filed in this case, hmm. 136. Wow. There is a lot of uh, interest in the case. It was my understanding, by the way, that people were being paid $30 an hour to stand in line to get into the actual arguments themselves because the Supreme Court... Uh, does not televise its uh, mm -hmm. events, and this is probably one of the most well. Per, may, this might be the most important Supreme Court case since Roe versus Wade, uh, in my opinion. Uh, whether it will be upheld or not, my own analysis is it should be upheld uh, because uh, the Supreme Court has not overturned a law regarding economic regulation of this sort uh, in in toto uh, since 1936, dating back to. Uh, the New Deal, uh, some of some of the aspects of the New Deal were uh, overturned by the Supreme Court, interestingly, on 5-4 votes. This led to the court-packing battle that, uh, that followed. Mm -hmm. But eventually, many of the New Deal laws began being upheld because one of the justices, a guy ironically named Roberts, uh, switched his vote and started voting with the, uh, the so-called liberals on the court. But um, it's fascinating to see... In this uh, public opinion polling, this is what I find remarkable, uh, in which there's the disconnect between what Americans understand and what they, what they want or what they think they want. On this four specifics, this is what's interesting to me. They have um, a poll on the pre-existing conditions uh, idea. Americans in this poll approve this 85 to 12 I'm just going to leave out the no answer. 
uh, for the for the sake of simplicity, on uh, the issue of um, offering discounts on Medicare to cover the so-called donut hole. Approval on that is 77 to 16. On the issue of allowing children to stay on their parents' policies until the age of 26, approval on that is 68 to 28. And then on the so-called mandate, the individual mandate, that is narrowly disapproved, uh, 51 to 45. Still 45% of Americans want to see um, the individual mandate. And then on the issue of what should the Supreme Court do about uh, the law, 26% of Americans want to keep the law as it is. 29% are in favor of um, basically requiring the individual mandate to be overturned. 38% want to overturn the entire law, leaving alone the fact that you can't find any numbers near 38% that actually disapprove of the main specifics mm-hmm. of the law. So it shows how effective the uh, talk radio has been regarding the disinformation about this law and the inability of Americans to understand what this law is about or why it's come about. I thought that one of the unfortunate aspects of the oral arguments was I don't think they went into the history of the health care debate sufficiently or the comparison between our system of healthcare versus uh, other industrialized com- countries that we're competing with in the uh, global economy. And for uh, Scalia to trivialize things, I'll just give him a brain damage award in which everything kind of revolves around requiring eating broccoli, which is, you know, pat- patently absurd. This has got nothing to do with broccoli. I was joking, I think, telling you last night that American history is going to have to be rewritten. <laughs> give me broccoli or give me death. Uh, don't shoot until you see the broccoli in their eyes. <laughs> Remember the broccoli. <laughs> Which would apply both to the Alamo and the Maine. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so well, uh, it would be very interesting to see what happens uh, at the end of the day. I suspect, my theory is that this will be upheld 6-3, to three, that uh, Kennedy will eventually... Will, uh, side with the liberals and then Roberts for the purposes of historical... Uh, credibility will vote with the liberals but we'll see a year ago when these uh, cases were beginning to be contested and it's interesting that in the state of michigan um governor snyder wants michigan to get going on an exchange and the interestingly the wall street journal has a map showing the states that are basically working on establishing a a health care insurance state exchange Uh, that's permitted under the law. It's not required, but it's permitted. And this, of course, is the Romney uh, law in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Fascinating that the the Romney law in Massachusetts was essentially the long work of John Chafee, Republican senator from Rhode Island. He'd been working on this 20 years ago. And, of course, Ted Kennedy, because he was the senior senator from Massachusetts, got actively involved in the state legislation of crafting this law. And Michigan's on the map. Attorney General Bill Schuette, I'll give him a brain damage award, uh, was part of this attorney general group, 26 of them in total, all Republicans that had filed amicus briefs in opposition of the uh, Affordability Health Care Act. So it's a very... On the surface, a fairly uh, partisan uh, um, divide in the country over this. And um, 
most uh, Supreme Court experts just a year ago said that the law will be upheld eight to one. That this was a slam dunk. That there was no um, justification to overturn it. And if, unfortunately, the Supreme Court wasted an entire day debating or not, uh, debating whether or not the, 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 that there was any quote standing. You know whether whether this obscure 1867 act was part of the debate. But the, I have to say that... Because uh, you can't challenge a law unless you've actually paid the, the tax. Right. And this, of course, gets back to the most fascinating aspect of the whole thing. If it's overturned, the way to make it constitutional is to uh, create a single-payer system huh. with taxes. Congress has the right to impose yeah. taxes. Supreme Courts have upheld that right under Article One, Section 8 since the inception of our republic. So uh, there's a lot of confusion about what's going on. And when Scalia throws in broccoli, and this becomes one of the big uh, subjects of debate uh, throughout the week. Uh, well, that's that's just my point, actually, is that uh, it, it should be an 8-1 slam dunk decision based on the merits of the case, uh, the, the history of this sort of uh, procedure and policy in the country and the court's reaction to it. Uh, but uh, that assumes that the Supreme Court justices take their job seriously as sort of thoughtful uh, analyzers and considerers of what is constitutionally sound. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, when uh, Scalia basically uh, mouths a bunch of right-wing radio talking points and uh, Clarence Thomas is his sort of, uh, you know... Sidekick. Yeah, well, his silent, silent partner. Silent partner, at never, the very least. Hasn't asked a question in quite some number of years now. Yeah, the cat's got his tongue or Rush Limbaugh or somebody. But, uh, of course, Clarence Thomas officiated at one of Rush Limbaugh's weddings, so we know the affiliation there. But uh, uh, they're ideologues, not really jurists uh, in in the truest possible sense of that word. Now, of course, all of the nine individuals on the, the court have their own sort of political identity. There's a great Alexander Coburn piece from some 12 years ago about how you can't really tell how uh, a Supreme Court uh, nominee is going to turn out over the long haul. Nixon, for example, uh, really disappointed in Warren Burger and, uh, and uh, Burger and in Warren, Earl Warren. Uh, the right-wingers had that impeach Earl Warren thing, and, of course, he was appointed by a Republican. Earl Warren appointed by a Republican as yeah, well. and uh, Coburn's essay was interesting in that it noted uh, you can sort of get a glimpse at uh, how the judges' voting records are going to unfold over the years if you look at what jobs their fathers had. Ah. In other words, how connected were they with some real-world experience to the actual lives of working Americans? Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a great determiner because, of course... That's ultimately what government should be about, about is what's best for the actual citizens. Well, and it's not the special interests, yeah. not the big corporate elites, but the people. And it's interesting that on the Roe versus Wade uh, uh, ruling, this was ruled seven to two, and three of Nixon's four appointees voted to uphold that law. Mm -hmm. uh, it was written by Blackman, Harry Blackman, who was a Nixon appointee. One of the ironies of the current Supreme Court and its makeup is that virtually every case that's got any controversy to it is decided five to four and by the way they decided five five to four today that uh prison officials can strip search uh, people even for minor things like traffic infractions stunning 
Now, who's invading privacy and giving the government more power, right. liberals or conservatives? Well, so-called conservatives, as we've noted before, that term no longer really applies. And who, the irony of the fact that they hear this case a couple of days following the fact that Dick Cheney got a heart transplant. Now, who paid for Dick Cheney's heart transplant? Have you heard any conservatives complaining about taxpayers picking up the tab on that? This is probably a operation that costs a quarter of a million dollars. It's very complex. You have to get on a donor exchange mm -hmm. list. You have to wait around for several years. And there's all sorts of other criteria involved. Um, that's the system. So the system has either got to be reformed and improved, or they have to make other changes in, in, in laws regarding health care. They cannot continue with this thing where hospitals are required to treat people, uh, regardless of uh, insurance or not. And, of course, hospitals do treat people to stabilize them. But you, after that, you don't get treated, perhaps, if you don't have insurance. Well, so. and, of course, ER is not really the right place to receive uh, normal, required, necessary medical attention. That yeah. We, you know, anybody who possesses a human body needs routinely throughout one's life. If, when it gets to the point where it's the emergency room, that's very expensive. And, of course, many hospitals here in the Detroit area have gone uh, belly up in the last decade mm -hmm. because they have too many uh, people that are being treated without insurance and they can't stay in business. In fact, uh, Bayer Hospital in Ypsilanti uh, no longer exists for that reason. So Americans need to start looking themselves in the mirror about what, you know, what's really going on in this country because it's, uh, it's ironic that Kennedy, who decides these cases is only on the court because Bork uh, was uh, basically negated by the uh, Senate. That take, was the one time the Democrats really uh, take this nomination spine yeah. uh, during the Reagan years. Take this nomination back. He's an extremist, uh, way outside any sort of system of the, what we know as the judicial mainstream. Indeed. Then his next appointment was a guy named Doug Ginsburg. And I don't know if you remember what caused his demise, but it was the fact that he had smoked marijuana. That's right. This Back in college. This Well, with, and with college students, apparently, while he was at Harvard. So this is what disqualified him automatically from the Supreme Court. Right. So the conservatives are the ones that overturned that uh, nomination. Kennedy was choice three. <laughs> the ironies of American history. And, of course, it's interesting that the uh, Roe versus Wade case, and I've made this point before, Blackman, in the case, cites uh, about five uh, constitutional amendments, most of them from the Bill of Rights, and uh, probably a dozen court cases precedent that allowed Roe versus Wade to be decided the way it was. And it was, at the end of the day, the idea that Americans have a fundamental right to privacy. What a novel concept. Indeed. Uh... <clears throat> And a uniquely American one. Privacy, I always uh, like to remind people, is a fairly recent invention, certainly in European history. Uh, cities are crowded, uh, villages are small, and the space wasn't there for the sort of privacy and individual uh, liberties that we all enjoy and take for granted here. I don't think we'll get to our Santorum clip this week, alas. We can, we can, we can do it next week because we'll, he's, he's going to get clobbered tomorrow in indeed, both Maryland so and... Uh, we'll, um, we'll wrap him up next week West with this clip of him speaking in Janesville. Uh, some listeners may have heard this. Uh, 
he seems to get about halfway through uh, the N-word uh, in talking about Obama and sort of stops mid-word. And it's uh, one of those interesting uh, sort of uh, linguistic moments. But I want to quickly mention that uh, there's a really great uh, cover story by Thomas Frank in the April uh, 2012 Harper's Magazine. It's a rich man's world. How billionaire backers pick America's candidates. This is a great expose on exactly how the so-called Citizens United decision has utterly changed the game and 